But welcome to RUF. I invite you to take your Bibles or look on your handout with me. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 tonight. So we're continuing to look at the book of Genesis and the book of beginnings. Spent the last couple of weeks looking at the fall. What happened at the fall? What led Adam and Eve to fall? What were the results of the fall? Looked at that last week. And tonight we see a new beginning. And it's life in a fallen world. What is life going to look like in a fallen world? And that's what we see and we begin with Adam and Eve's own two children, Cain and Abel. So let's read here. I'm going to try to read a little faster than normal because we're going to read the whole of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahushel, and Mahushel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. You're welcome. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. It's interesting when you read history and you look at the world picking up the pieces after World War II. 
One of the things that the, that the world had to come to grips with, especially the Western world had to come to grips with, was the cost of the affair, not necessarily the financial cost, but the cost of what they thought was the trajectory of humanity at the time. And then more so the horrors of uncovering just what destruction man had been capable of during uh, all the years of that war. Dorothy Sayers was a, a British writer and poet, and she said of those uh, who once held to the optimistic belief of progress and enlightenment, she said this, It is as though the bottom has dropped out from their universe. Lord David Cecil, a great name, right? Uh, is a British biographer and historian. He was commenting on the Holocaust and he said this. He said, The jargon of philosophy of progress taught us to think that the savage and primitive state of man is behind us. But barbarism is not behind us. It is within us. Us, Lord David C. said, us, it's within us. This is what Genesis chapter 4 is beginning to show us and what the rest of Scripture and the rest of history actually bears out. That in Genesis 3, we kind of saw the stark reality of sin entering the world. But now in Genesis 4, what we're beginning to see and what history will attest to is that what happened in Genesis chapter 3 wasn't just something that happened to have happened. It wasn't just some chance happening. It wasn't just some hiccup in the story. What we now begin to understand about sin in the world is that it has become the rule. It's not the exception. That there's not one place in the world now, not even within our own selves, that we can turn that is not tainted by sin. And to illustrate this for us, we get this heartbreaking story of Adam and Eve's own sons. Um, one of them rising up against the other and killing him. So I want to look, I want to ask the question, what would life, what will life in a fallen world look like? Three things, sacrifice, sin, and salvation. Okay. The first thing, sacrifice. One commentator kind of, at least helpful to me, summed up this whole chapter like this. He said, the content of this chapter is not the life and death of godly Abel or the life and development of godless Cain. The main purpose of this chapter is furnishing us with the key to the kingdom. What was he talking about? Well, I suggest you what he's talking about. The key to the kingdom means the key to living life now in a fallen world and living life in relationship with the one who made it. And the key to that kingdom now and what this story centers on and how the whole story unfolds, it's sacrifice. Cain and Abel, they're brothers. They come from the same parents. They have the same upbringing. They have different occupations, but they know we don't have any explanation as to why they're doing this, but we know that they are practicing uh, the same thing, sacrifice. And what they both understand and what sacrifice tells us throughout the rest of Scripture is that that they, we, no one now, because of sin, can come to God just as they are. You can no longer come to God just as you are. This was the painful lesson that Adam and Eve learned in the aftermath of the fall, right? When love and security that they enjoyed with each other and with their maker gave way to fear and shame. They had to cover. They had to be covered by God. And now, one of the rules of life now is sacrifice. That we are no longer acceptable to God because of our sin. And so there must be an offering. There must be a sacrifice to approach this God now because we are sinful. There must be something that goes between us. That secures our acceptability in His presence. Now, 
Maybe the idea of sacrifice isn't foreign to you. Maybe you grew up in church, you know the Bible. But let's just think about this idea of sacrifice. This idea that we can no longer just enter the presence of God without something going before us. We know this just by matter of experience. Just by life experience. We know, every single one of you in this room know, that as you are is not enough. We all know this. We live it out. You live it out in college, you live it out in your relationships, you've lived it out your whole life. Well, I think one of the most tangible examples that there's nothing quite like resume building that reminds you that as you are right now is not enough, right? Some of you go about your classes, you go about your extracurricular activities because you've got this thing behind you that says you've got to fill up that resume. Why? Because nobody wants you, right? i got to fill it up so that somebody will want me. Somebody will hire me. There's nothing like a resume to remind you of how empty or whatever you are. It's how we date. It's how we make friends. You go to a party. You come to a social gathering like this, right? You prepare. Most of you prepare somewhat to enter a room like this. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, there is something in you that says, I've got to be something when I get to this room, when people say hello to me, when I try to say hello to other people. We have this ingrained in us. Social media, right? It's the, the, all the studies and research that's coming out now about social media. It's like the living example of this. That we put, don't lie, how many times have you about to put something on social media and you've gone, I don't know. Why? Because you're worried about what it's going to say. Whether it's a picture or words. Because we know that as we are, we are not enough. We know this. And so we're all, in every area of our life, we're all making sacrifices somewhere to gain this acceptability. We all are. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Asina. I don't know if you, that's how you say her name. Asina O'Neill. She was an Australian Instagram star. By the time that she was 18, she had garnered so many Instagram followers and so many YouTube followers that by the age of 18, she fully was able to financially support herself. Right? She, was, she was a big star, but she made headlines when she turned 18 for quitting social media. And when she wrote about the experience and what life had been like since quitting social media, she said this. She said, I fell in love with this idea that I could be of value to other people. But it was really a snowballing addiction of being liked by others. I can't tell you how free I feel without social media. Never again will I let a number define me. It suffocated me. Now catch this. I would spend hours looking at everyone else's perfect lives. And I strive to make mine look just as good. That was someone with half a million Instagram followers saying, I looked at everyone else's lives and I strive to make mine look just as good. Because all of us know in our hearts that as we are, we're not enough. We know it. And so Cain and Abel are only doing what they know to be true by making an offering to God. This is the key to the kingdom. This is the key to living in a fallen world now. But the question right around the sacrifice that the whole story really centers on that we don't get a a full explanation of is, why does God accept Abel's offering? But not Cain's. Um, I would offer to you, I don't think it's about the fact that Abel does blood offering and and Cain does vegetable offering. There were grain offerings in the Old Testament. I don't think that's the issue. Um, We're not really directly told, but the author of Hebrews does process it for us like this. In Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, he says this. By faith, Abel offered to God 
a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. But what I do think we are being told is that Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith. In other words, Abel's sacrifice was by faith because Abel presented his offering uh, and it was acceptable because he offered it trusting by faith that its acceptability was up to God. Whereas Cain offers his sacrifice thinking that it's acceptable on his own terms. It's a heart issue. Abel's faith was in God. Cain's is in his own sacrifice. It's in himself. And I think the rest of the, the interaction with God and what he does bears this out. We all live with the reality that as we are, we are not enough. We all live with this reality. And out of the gate, what this story is asking us is where are you going to look to find it? Where are you going to look to find that acceptability? How are you going to determine that acceptability? How are you going to build it? What will you rest on? For whatever reason, Cain thought he knew the answer, but it was rejected. And after it's rejected, God warns him. God is there. God warns him. That when you, Cain, realize that you've been offering up what you've been offering up to make sense of life, when you realize that it stops working, that is when you have to deal with the dangers of sin. You notice that, that God brings this up with him before he even begins to sin. So that leads us to the second thing here. So the first part about life in a fallen world is sacrifice. But what Cain shows us soberingly is the reality of sin in a fallen world. It's depth, where it comes from, how it grows, how destructive it is. The clearest thing this whole chapter shows us is the swift progress and utter depths of sin. Um, whereas Eve, right, we, Eve was uh, succumbed to sin by an outside tempter. But now her own son, her own flesh and blood, he succumbs to sin as it comes from his own heart. Whereas Cain finds himself hating himself because of his sin, his descendant Lamech by the end of the chapter is singing a song about his sin. The swift progress and utter depths of sin is what this chapter chronicles for us. And look, look at verse 6. As God comes to him and says, Cain, why are you so angry? And again, we're being pointed to a heart issue, right? There is something in the heart of Cain that made his sacrifice unacceptable. And the first clue is how he handles God's rejection of the sacrifice. How does he, how does he do it? Um, his heart disposition towards God was that he could not handle God's no. And you look, like God doesn't blame him. God doesn't say, look, Cain, you should have known better. God doesn't do that. He says, if you do well, it'll go well for you, Cain. But this isn't, all, this isn't the issue. What becomes the issue is how he handles God's no. He gets angry, then he gets crestfallen, then he gets jealous, and then he's murderous. It grows. Even though God warns him, sin is crouching at the door. And Cain says, I don't care. And ends up devouring him. What Cain shows us is that he could not, uh, that he could not handle life if it was not on his own terms. Something in his heart did not want to go to God on God's terms. And he could not handle life apart from his own terms. There was a Puritan once who said, I used to hate, I still hate this quote because it still makes me feel insecure. But the quote was this, if you want to humble a man, 
Ask him about his prayer life. I hate that quote. Um, I still hate that quote because it makes me feel bad about my prayer life, right? Why do we all feel insecure about our prayer lives? If, there's a, if you ever go to something and there's a seminar on prayer, you're guaranteed for that thing to be filled up. Because everybody feels weak. Everybody feels insecure. People are like, how's your prayer life? And you're like, ah, could it be better? We all feel that way. Why do you think our prayer lives are such a source of insecurity and shame? Why is it so hard for us to pray if you're anything like me? Even though you want to, you earnestly want to, you earnestly want to make that a habit in your life. Why is it so hard for us? I think the more I thought about Cain and his heart, one thing I had to ask myself, and I think it's worth asking ourselves. Have we ever thought that part of the reason it's so hard for us to pray is because we'd rather not give God the opportunity to say no? What if prayer, by its very nature of what it is, is giving everything up to God and saying, do things on your terms. And it's so hard for our hearts to do that because we don't want things on somebody else's terms. But isn't it encouraging, though, that Jesus does precisely that? Jesus, at the end of his life, the night he's going to be betrayed, he sees what stands before him. He goes straight up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember what he says to God. Remove this cup from me. Take it away, please. But then what does he end with? But not my will, but yours be done. Cain's sacrifice and then his anger. What they show forth for us is not only was his heart not open to God's will, it was actively set against it. He didn't want to have any of it. Miroslav Volf tells us that the essence of sin is to build an identity outside of God. This is what Cain was doing. When you want life on your own terms, you're building an identity outside of God. And Wolf puts it like this. He says, The power of sin rests not in an urge of violence, but in the reasoning of the perverted self that insists on maintaining its own false identity. The power of sin rests not in an urge of violence, but in the reasoning of the perverted self that insists on maintaining its own false identity. Cain was confronted by God's rejection of his self-made, self-willed, self-sufficient identity. God confronts him. But when Cain's confronted with that, his choice, he had a choice. Do I realign my identity with God's will? Or do I believe the lie and continue life as I want it? And that's the, y'all, it's the same is true for us. If you build your identity on anything other than God, life will do nothing but make you angry. Please hear that. If you build your identity on anything else other than God, life will do nothing for you except make you angry. You build your identity on achievement and success, and you may gain much achievement and success in this life. But by the end of it, you're going to resent other people when they don't acknowledge what you've done. When they don't appreciate you as much as you think you should be appreciated or recognized. If you build your identity on loving and serving others, you know you could do that? You know you can actually build your identity on how much you give yourself? All the while you're burying yourself while you do that. If you build your identity on loving and serving other people, you will resent other people when they're not grateful. You'll be angry. If you build your identity on your looks, right, and how people react to your looks, you will resent yourself when you can't keep it up. When it's not good enough. 
you build your identity on a boyfriend or girlfriend or even a, even a husband or a wife, you will either end up resenting them for disappointing you, which will inevitably happen, or you will, they will end up resenting you because they can't handle the weight of your neediness. If you build your identity on anything other than God, life will do nothing for you other than make you angry. Again, Asina O'Neill. No idea if I'm saying that right, but whatever. Um, she said this about, again, in her quitting social media. She said, yeah, 16-year-old me would have been like, WTF, girl, you have the dream. That's what she said. That's what I'm saying. WTF, girl, you have the dream life. So why did I feel so lost, lonely, and miserable? Social media had become my sole identity. I didn't even know who I was without it. Yo, that's powerful. <laughs> when you build your identity on anything other than God, you'll become like Cain. And the, the, the most tangible fruit is verse 12. You'll become a restless wanderer. Augustine said in his prayers one time, he said, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in you. The fruit of sin is restless wandering. Meaning no matter how good it might sometimes make you feel, no matter the satisfaction that it might deceptively promise, you will always find yourself coming up empty and you will repeat the cycles over and over and over again. Then again, this is again what is a beautiful part of a very dark and sobering chapter. It doesn't stop there. And we don't have to either. The final thing I want to look at here is salvation. There's salvation. There's hope in this story. The, the, the continuing a theme from Genesis 3, as dark as Genesis 3 is. The reality of Genesis 4, this is a heartbreaking story. Two brothers in a field and one rises up and kills the other one. But even though the darkness of sin's shadow continues to fall and spread its canopy over all of creation, what we're being reminded here is that it cannot block out the light. It cannot block out hope. And ultimately, it cannot block out salvation. Because you look at this, look at God. Amidst the utter tragedy of this story, look at God throughout it. He calls out to Cain before his anger leads him to murder. He beckons him, Cain, why are you angry? He calls out to Cain after he murders his brother to confront him. While at the same time promising protection and restraining evil in his life. And then we look at the rest of Cain's life. From Cain's line comes builders and craftsmen and musicians and artists. God blessing the world and the human race even through murderous Cain. All of it saying this, I think. All of it saying this to Cain and saying this to the world. You do not have to stay this way. You do not have to stay this way. Restless, angry, bitter, wandering, retaliating, self-sufficient. You do not have to stay like this. You can turn and you can repent. It's kind of remarkable if you think about it. But the question remains, like, how could that be? How could that be? In the reality of the darkness of the story, in the reality of the darkness that I sometimes know and see and feel and even sometimes inflict on other people that comes from my heart.
How could it be? Well, the author of Hebrews, again, in the New Testament, he tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? What does blood, Abel's blood do? It cries out. The blood of your brother Cain cries out to me. I mean, of your brother Abel, Cain, cries out to me. Abel's blood cried out for justice. It cried out for a very dark wrong to be made right. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Why? Jesus' blood also cries for justice. But it also cries out for grace. Because Jesus' blood says that he didn't just bear the curse, he became the curse. Not just that rests on murderers, but the curse that rests on all of us who build our identity outside of God. And his blood, Jesus' blood, calls not just for their forgiveness, but for their redemption and ultimately for their restoration. For an end to their restless wandering. And I actually see, we see this happen in verses 25 and 26, why I slow down as we ended it. Eve recognizes another child as a gift from God, a commitment by God to keep his promise that we read in Genesis 3.15. And what the author of Genesis is telling us is that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So if you get it, as dark as this chapter is, what shines through? Faith. That God's still there. That God still is in control. That my sin actually cannot disrupt His purposes in the world. That He's actually provided a way. And He will continue to provide a way. And as one commentator put it, that despite all the ravages of sin spread through generations, despite its violence, its vengeance, its murderous rage, despite the isolation, the alienation, the anxiety, the anger to which it leads, despite all the disorders and dysfunctions of life in this broken world, what we're being told at the end of the chapter is that God can still be known. And so people began to call on him. How can that be? I love how the hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, puts it, puts it like this. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. I don't know the darkness that you have known in this life. Some of y'all know things I have no way of empathizing with. But the hope of this chapter is that God is still there and He can still be known and He provides a way. That's life. Life in a fallen world, yes, but life. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, when we take in the details of the story and really think about what happened and what caused it to happen, it's heavy, it's heartbreaking.
We don't really know what to do with it. Father, we think of uh, parents and teenagers in Florida who experienced unspeakable evil this week. We have no idea what that's like. But you do. So much so that you entered into it. And you took it on yourself. And you even let it kill you. Father, we need this truth. We need that light. We need life. Would you give it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.